This New America NYC event took place on February 2nd, 2017, and is titled I Am Not Your Negro, and features Bear Peck, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Aisha Karifa Smart, and Jamil Smith. I'm Nicole Hannah-Jones. I'm a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. My name is Aisha Karifa Smart. I'm an author and the niece of James Baldwin. Hi, I'm Mayor Bearpack, and I'm one of the producers on the film. All right. First, I feel like we all need to kind of take a breath after that. It's a concentrated dose of truth. And uh, as we start the conversation, Aisha, I think I want to start with you. And you said that uh, this film has helped resurrect your uncle to introduce him to a new audience, said young people who may not have heard of him. What new things, if anything, did you learn from it? Wow. Um, it, it was more the nuances in the film and the way Haber and Raul and his team put together his narrative, his words with the images, and it brought home because, you know, when you are growing up and you know that your relative, your uncle, your mom, you know, knew Malcolm X, you know, knew Martin Luther King Jr., uh, and knew Medgar Evers and all these incredible people, it didn't really hit home for me until I saw it on the screen how intimate the relationship was. Um, how it impacted my uncle very deeply when he lost these people one by one. It was like they were picked off one by one and quite possibly he felt that he was next. And growing up with that sort of unspoken heaviness and fear and trepidation around having that kind of, you know, ominous, cloud hanging over your family, you know, worried about your loved ones and something happening to them. My three sisters were pictured in the film sitting with my uncle on the floor and we lived not far from Central Park and they disappeared one day to pick flowers in Central Park. And of course, the first thing that came to the mind of my mom and my uncle was that they had been kidnapped because of the three little girls in Birmingham and the bombings and, you know. So it just, it really hit home for me in terms of intergenerational trauma and how when you're impacted by an event like that or events like that, successive events like that, how um, it impacts the entire family, the community and the nation in unspoken ways that people really have not yet processed or come to grips with. Nicole, as somebody who has read his work, who grew up with his work, who is now a journalist, how did this piece of work resonate with you? I can hardly find my words right now. I mean, I literally was yeah. like, I need to take a moment. I think 
was extremely emotional, extremely powerful when you think about, um, I mean, my work spends a lot of time in history and the way the movie draws the connections between then and now, because I think so many white Americans want to believe that back then they would have been on the right side of things. And um, I think what the movie shows is that uh, white people then and now were willing to put up with a great deal of injustice and still believe that they are good people um, and that it's never about whether you are good or bad, but as James Baldwin clearly says, it's about the actions and um, the footage going back and forth through time, I think was just so powerful. First of all, congratulations on all the awards that this film has won already, and for your Oscar nomination for Best Documentary. Uh, how did this idea come to you, to your brother Raul, to the other filmmakers, uh, and what did you learn about Baldwin during the process of making this film? Uh, well, it was a long process. This movie took about 10 years to make, and within those Ten years, Raul did several other films, but uh, initially, when um, Raul had just finished a film, I think uh, on the uh, Rwanda genocide mm -hmm. for HBO, and uh, at that point, he wanted to really do something on James Baldwin. James Baldwin had always been a companion uh, since he had been a teenager. Reading James Baldwin helped him understand his place, understand who he was, and made him understand that there was really nothing wrong with, with, with him, that he was not crazy in terms of the way he understood the world or his impression. And so um, he reached out to your mom <laughs> in DC, uh, who oversees uh, the uh, Baldwin estate, and um, initially, he wanted to do a, a, uh, a narrative. And um, that w within two years, he realized that wasn't working. The partners and the, 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 the creation of a, uh, of a narrative didn't work for Baldwin at that time. And so he took a break. And we still had access to, to the rights. And I must say, the Baldwin estate Gloria Curry for Smart was sort of our guardian angel throughout because she gave access, uh, she gave Raul access to all of James Baldwin's work. That is published, unpublished, um, uh, private letters, all sort of correspondence, uh, all of his work, which is really rare uh, for our industry. Mm -hmm. Usually when you get an option, maybe you may get an option for a book chapter right. right so but this was for the entire work and uh, so of course Raul felt the that whatever he would do would have to he would only have one chance and he had to do it right so two years later that's four years in the process Gloria gave Raul these 30 pages and she said here Raul I think you'll know what to do with this mm. And those were the 30 pages that you see um, on screen. But also, those 30 pages finally gave Raul an entry into the film. Right. And uh, so the idea was that, OK, first of all, the, the, the letter 
was incredible because in this letter, not only did this, he mention what he wanted to write, why it was important for him to write this book, how he was going to write it, and how important it was to him as a witness to uh, be a witness for his three friends who had been murdered. So that entry was quite important. Raul realized that, uh, well, it was great as a filmmaker to have almost this kind of entry. It's, it's, it's God sent, right? So he said, okay, maybe he didn't write this book, but it's my job as a filmmaker because I really feel that in all of his work, technically that book had been written, and my job is to go around and find it. So it's a more of a collaboration. More than anything, it's more a collaboration well, essentially between Raul. Yes, and but there is not a single word that Raul wrote right. that right. you see on the screen. And the other thing is that Raul wanted to make sure that um, there was no talking head in the film, so that we were inside James Baldwin's head, so that we would experience what the way he saw the world. Yeah, I mean, it felt like a peek inside not only just his mind but also in terms of his, his very unique and powerful vision of what yes. America is. Um, I, should, I mean, I don't think it could have been better timed, frankly, um, considering that it took 10 years. The fact that it appears now, I mean, can you speak a little bit to that, the, the power and the importance of your uncle's ideas in this moment? Well, you know, he's been called a prophet, you know, by some, and his the, the prescient, nature of his voice and his writings are unparalleled, you know, almost anything that takes place in our modern time, people can find a Baldwin quote that speaks to yeah. whatever is happening. It's like anytime I log on to my computer and I read the news, and James Baldwin said in 1963, <laughs> bah, 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 you know, and right. it's just... It's uncanny, you know, and it speaks to his ability to get to the heart of the matter of the pathology that exists within the American psyche, within the, the construct of American society. He was able to go in and speak directly to um, what the issue is and was, and that has not changed. You know, he gave white America specifically a homework assignment, mm -hmm. you know, and he called on white Americans to begin to examine why they needed the creation of this other, this marginalized being, this person, this group of people that they needed to dehumanize in order for their whiteness to be validated. And the homework assignment has not been done. And so here we are in 2017, still grappling with the same issues. And, um, you know, it just speaks to the fact that that type of self-examination is very painful. He said, one of the reasons that people cling so fiercely to their hatreds is because they fear that once they let go of their hatreds, they will be forced to deal with pain. Mm -hmm. And so that seems to be the issue, is that people don't want to confront themselves and deal with their own sense of failure or disillusionment or, you know, 
broken dreams, and so they project it outward onto the other. And that exists now if you're Muslim, if you're transgender, if you're gay, if you're lesbian, black, Latino, Latinx, whatever you know, other space that you occupy, we are the ones that are being projected upon, you know, and he spoke to that, you know, 50 years ago. The people who now sort of have to carry his torch, or at least stand on his shoulders now, you know, they're trying to do the best they can. I mean, we have a volume that came out this year, The Fire This Time. Um, you see the work of people like, you know, ta Coates, and a number of other writers who are doing their best to, if not emulate him, then to at least, you know, follow in his footsteps. Nicole, I want to ask about the role of the witness that he spoke of in the film when he goes down south to join Megar Evers. The line is, says, the line which separates the witness from an actor is very thin. Um, can you talk about the value of Baldwin's journalistic distance? Yeah, um, that part clearly struck out to me for lots of reasons. As a black journalist, Oftentimes, you get into this field because a sense of activism, a sense of understanding that, one, you don't trust white America to, to tell our stories, that white America has never told our stories the way that they needed to be told. They've never told the truth, either about us or about themselves. At the same time, you understand that you must have a distance to tell that truth. And that can be a very hard thing. People are marching in Ferguson, you want to march. When people are marching in Baltimore, you want to march. When people are picketing at the Women's March, you want to be there, and that is not the role of the witness. Yeah. Or even Battery Park last weekend. Or Battery <laughs> Park. I mean, my own daughter, when I was explaining to her about the Women's March, asked, well, why weren't we there? Mm -hmm. And so I think that distance is, is a challenge, but that distance is necessary. I think the role of the witness is very important. Um, I talk to activists all the time. You have your role, and we have ours. Our role is the big megaphone that we can have. Our role is not being so embedded in it that you can't see the full story and tell that full story. Um, I think what, what Baldwin understood in a way, I mean, I just quoted Baldwin in a piece I did a couple weeks ago, um, is that black Americans have never had the luxury of not seeing this country for what it is. When you are brought here literally in shackles, when, um, the founding fathers owned your ancestors when you are deliberately written out of the Declaration of Independence mm -hmm. because you give lie to this notion of America's exceptionality. You cannot, um, because of that, we can never, we, we have never been able to buy into the lie. And that is why we are so uncomfortable and discomforting to white Americans, because yeah. we're always standing there as the shadow over this dream, over this gauzy vision. And he understood that and was able to, to talk about that with such piercing clarity. Like when you hear him yeah. talk, he wastes not a word. He gets right to the meat of that thing. And right. because of that, you cannot deny it. And as a writer, I know how hard that is. We all work to try to have that power yeah. in our words. Um, and we try to model ourselves after that. He set that standard. But also not being afraid, I mean, when you see him standing in this crowd of white faces, 
and not mincing one word. That is not mm -hmm. an easy thing to do. You want to relate to your audience. You want, your, you want to look at your audience and you want them to approve of the things you're saying. And, and the power for him to stand there and speak that kind of truth, I think, is a model. Yeah, that Cambridge, that Cambridge sequence mm. piece throughout the film is mm. incredible to me. As, as a black person who has done a lot of public speaking in very, very white spaces. Um, but I wanted to ask you, is art, this, is art activism in and of itself? I mean, is this a piece of activism, do you feel like? Raul likes to say that uh, film is not innocent. Any film that you watch is not innocent, even if you're watching um, um, Chainsaw Massacre 10. <laughs> um, it could be a political statement. <laughs> yes, but also it takes space in your head. Right. We're so bombarded with all of our electronics and all of our information that comes that sometimes we have no time to reflect, to even be with ourselves. The way Baldwin describes uh, this... Um, telenovela, um, a te reality TV. Right. You know, this, like, it's narcotics. I mean, once you start watching that stuff, it's, you know, you can't put it down, right? And so, but that also takes away from uh, your ability to, to think, to reflect, to even uh, see where your space is in, in, in every day in the world. So, uh, no, is art, uh, as you said, is, is art political? Uh, yeah, all the time. We have to get to the subject of white people. <laughs> and I think that, you know, you know, based off of what the film is, I'm not really sure if I care if that makes anybody uncomfortable at this point. Um, I just want people to understand that this movie is not only essential viewing for us, who a lot of us know the story from living it, but it is essential for everyone. And Aisha, in that, in that vein, um, I mean, your uncle spoke of whiteness in ways that I think you know more white people need to hear. Absolutely. And how do you think a film like this can inform our current struggles with race and racism, um, you know, which have roots, you know, beyond his life? Well, one of the things that my uncle did is that he confronted white Americans very um, squarely with the idea that whiteness was a construct, that it was not based in a reality, uh, that whiteness was something that pe white was something that people who came to this country became. So before Europeans came to America, they had their tribe. You were Germanic, you were, you know, Norse, you were, you know, you had roots in a culture um, that had a mythology, that had a history, a folklore, um, even a dress code and customs that were identified with that tribe, as did the rest of the world. And then magically you come to America and everybody sort of gets christened with this title as white, which is based of course in a hierarchical you know, um, format which sets white folks above everyone else. So you have the white and everyone else is other and then 
underneath. So his challenge was for white folks to examine that within themselves, the need to let go of your history and your culture and everything that meant something to you in the old country and embrace this title that was sort of homogenous and you know, took yeah. away a sort of identity uh, that was richer than just being plain old white. Right. <laughs> well, the, the problem is also that the, the definition of white keeps changing. Right, exactly. And so, you know, Nicole, That's the problem for us. A, right, a, a exactly. Little bit, right? <laughs> right. So, Turks, who were people who were not considered white, you know, before 1950, and then 1960 came in, it was like, okay, now these people are considered white, and now Italians and Irish are white, because before that they were not considered white, and now you have people from certain North African countries who are now considered white. You know, so we're, you know, it's like, the lottery, people come here and hope to be able to win the white jackpot, you know, and so that they can be above, you know, us. You know, we have to really examine that because that's what's tearing the country apart currently, is this notion of whiteness and what that means and who gets to be part of that club and who gets to be the other and therefore um, projected upon all the undesirable characteristics that people don't want to deal with within themselves get cast upon those who are considered other and therefore subhuman. Right. So he examined that and he, one of the things that was so important to me is that my uncle never saw a problem with his blackness. He never felt inferior to anyone. He said, I'm not a nigger, I'm a man. And I come from strong people, you know, I'm the great-great-grandson of a slave, Hagar's child, issue of the bondsman. You know, he spoke with that with pride, you know, that, that there was something strong and powerful in being that despised child that was able to come up through the ranks and accomplish something. And he put it squarely upon white folks to say, this is your issue. There's nothing wrong with us. We're not doing anything wrong. We're just living. We're just trying to be human beings. And you continuously project this onto us. And I see what has happened in this culture is that black people have internalized a great deal of self-hatred because we've believed a lot of the things that were said about us that are absolutely not true. Before we move on, I want to give other people the, the chance to weigh in on that. You hit on it, what I was going to say at the very end, which is I think the most powerful thing that James Baldwin did was show that it is not black people who have caused this. Black people are not the problem, and it's not up to black people to fix it. Um, I think that is the most powerful message. And, and when I give talks, and inevitably I have a long line of well-meaning white folks who want me to tell them how they can help us. And what I always say is fix your people. Fix yourselves. <laughs> And I don't say that, I, I say yeah. that with 100% seriousness because black Americans did not cause the inequality, we did not build racial caste, we did not build this system, and we cannot undo it. And for white people to think that their only responsibility is to try to help us be better, that's not it. And I think that is what I have always found most powerful about James Baldwin, was growing up when everything around you in this entire country tells you that you are a problem that must be fixed. And the way you fix that is lose your blackness, is adapt, is forget everything that you're supposed to be. Um, and you look around your communities and, and you get the message, well, if you're black, it's gonna be a rundown community. And if you're white, it's gonna be a nice community. And 
Um, if you're black, you're gonna go to shitty schools, and if you're white, you're gonna get great schools, and if you're black, you're gonna be working in somebody's house or working in someone's factory, and if you're white, you can be a doctor. All of those messages that you're constantly eternalizing as a child, and James Baldwin says, wait a minute, it's not us. We did not create this. We are not the problem. The problem is whiteness. Then that then frees you. It liberates you as a black person to understand it is not my problem to fix. I have to navigate this world, absolutely, but it is not my problem to fix. And I think that is a message that white people need to take away and understand that they created the problem and the onus is on them. And as he said, Black people don't want anything except get out of our way, which is also what James Brown said, which is like my favorite thing, right? <laughs> you don't have to give me nothing. Just open, you know, open the door and I'll get it myself. Right, And I exactly. think that is the message. And that right. was the most powerful message for me as like a young black person right. trying to understand my place right. in the world. Yeah. I mean, I remember doing an interview with uh, Michael Eric Dyson for a piece that I did a long time ago. And he said, you know, all we're just asking for is to be on the same level, you know? No, no, no. Yeah, but I'm saying like, we're not allowed to. You know. Exactly. That's the that's his point. It's not that like we don't you know we haven't somehow achieved the same level of intelligence or or uh, ability. It's about the opportunities that are denied us. So before we get carried away, I want to make sure we leave enough time to take questions from the audience. So. Well, as far as I know, Heber, you can correct me on this. As far as I know, the 30 pages were always part of my uncle's um, papers, the collection of papers, his published uh, manuscripts, unpublished manuscripts. And it was something that he was working on before he died. And so he was never able to complete it because he passed in 87. So they were always there, but you know, most people have no idea what to do with an unfinished manuscript. If someone passes and you have these 30 pages, you know, someone is not gonna come along and finish the book. You know, that is just doesn't happen. So as far as I know, those 30 pages were there and it was sort of like what, you know, it would just become part of the papers, part of the collection because there's not much that you can do with it. Yeah, and uh, you're right. And also your mom was always organizing right. uh, the archive. Right. So she would discover things along the way that she would pass along uh, to Raul. And, uh, and this was when she found that, that, that changed everything. You know, people are hella jealous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're like, what? How did he do yeah. that? I mean, you're people right. have been trying for years. <laughs> to get close to that, and Raul just, you know, magically, you know, he, Raul and Herbert, I mean, just to tell the audience, Raul's filmography is long. He did not just start making films yesterday. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. I've been a huge fan of his for years, and his film spoke to me in a way you know, there's something about when I watch a film, how I was trained by my mother, and my uncle was an incredible film critic was you can watch a film and tell how somebody feels about you, either by the presence of characters that are based on you or the absence of characters that look like you. And so when I saw Raul's film, Man on the Shore, 
And the little girl in the film was me. You know, it was this little girl who was part of this family in Haiti, you know, that was living during the era of the Tonton Makout. And she was protected and loved by her family, but she sensed that there was something not quite right going on, you know, because the adults were going through stress of living during this time in Haiti, but they did everything they could to love her and protect her. And I saw myself in this film and I just fell in love with, you know, with Raul's filmmaking. So I encourage all of you, go see I Am Not Your Negro, but also check out his other body of work, Incredible Films. Indeed, indeed. Are there any other questions? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Sure. So colorization and I'll do what colorization did you leave on the, on the cutting floor? The, uh, the idea there was that we're so used to the civil rights uh, footage that sometimes even younger kids, when you know, uh, uh, Black History Month comes along, they see the same footage. And you, know, you get numb to it. You don't even see what it really means. And so the issue was, how do you uh, reclaim these images and actually enable the viewer to pay attention to what they're seeing. And so we experimented with a lot of different things and that's why sometimes you would see the uh, some of the current imagery in black and white. And the idea was how do you go back from the past to the present in a seamless way um, so that the audience can still follow what's going on. So what did you leave on the cutting room floor, though? Uh, <laughs> a lot. I mean, um, it's, it's, it's a lot. But I must say that when you have time as a filmmaker, you have control of the craft, you have control of the tools, and you have, you have time. You don't have necessarily partners who are saying, look, you know, uh, can you have this ready by whatever. Uh, you don't have that pressure. You're able to create a film like that with so many layers. You know, we were able to cut for uh, three months and then step away. Mm. And then come back 
and look at the, f the, the cut the, with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. And that makes a big difference. Every, every instance, every second that you see on the screen was planned. You know, at what time does the music ends? Does the music starts? Does the fade in starts? All of those things were really part of communicating uh, an ambiance and layers of, of, of understanding. I've seen the film in many iterations, and I've seen it in its final version at least, in, in, with audiences at least 20 or, or more times. And I must say, I still, um, there's some sections when I see, I, I, I just, it, I cry because it's still um, very moving. And I think, as Aisha mentioned, I think also that's how Raul works. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's his. Um, that's what makes him the filmmaker he is. He's really uh, a good filmmaker that way. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that helps your answer. Yes, sir. Anyone on the panel for that? Anybody? Yeah. Um, it's a big question, but um, I think it's it. It's hard to how I can tell you how I deal with it. Um, again, I go back to my uncle's quote about the reason why people cling so fiercely to their hatreds is because they feel if they let go of their hatred, they'll be forced to confront their own pain. So what you said is the same as that. The people are suffering from self-hatred and they're projecting it outward. For me, the remedy for that is both philosophical and spiritual. You have to begin to do the work of unpacking what it means to be a human being on this planet, having this journey, and what connects you to all other human beings on the planet and begin to see some sort of connection between all life and the universal brotherhood of man. You have to begin to see the world through different eyes. And right now, the biggest problem is the disconnectedness. You know, I believe that you are different from me because you are a white male, but if you have a different type of way of looking at life and philosophically or spiritually, you and I are one. It sounds real cheesy and kumbaya, no, but it, <laughs> it... That's only what the, I think the, you know, the right likes to put on our head. Right, but, but once I consider you part of my human family and as part of me, then I can't do to you something that I would not then do to myself. And I think it begins there, and it begins teaching children that there is no separation between humanity and all life, in fact. So I'm going to give a slightly less kumbaya answer. <laughs> um, 
I mean, one, you have to give up some of these ill-gotten gains. There's, there is, there is more than just a psychic damage. There is a physical damage. There are advantages that are passed down generationally that the civil rights movement did not address. The civil rights movement addressed legal discrimination. It did nothing to repair three centuries of stolen labor. It did nothing to repair 100 years of apartheid. And um, to me, all the talk is hollow if if there is not someone, if, if white people are not willing to give up the material, some of those material advantages that they are not deserving. How does a white child and a black child learn to respect each other as equals? They have to be in the same classroom together. Right. Yet here we are in the third most segregated city in the country, full of progressive white people who love the concept of equality, but make very different decisions in their personal lives. We have the most segregated large school district in the country. So you hear all the time, this is a melting pot. It's a beautifully diverse city. This is a diverse city that is extremely unequal and extremely segregated. So honestly, um, you cannot, it is true, you cannot legislate away racism. I actually don't care if you like me or not. I don't actually care what is in white people's hearts. What I care about is will my daughter get the same opportunity as any other child? And will the little black kids in her classroom get the same opportunity as any other child? And whether they like her or not is of no consequence to me. It's nice, it's a bonus. Clearly, we're all American. I would love for us all to get along. But I think we focus so much on what's in people's hearts mm -hmm. and not enough on what are people's actions and how are people maintaining a system that y'all did not create, just like we didn't create it, but you inherited this system. And again, you have to undo it. So I honestly, I spend all of my days sitting in classrooms and talking to kids who are being deprived of what this country has promised them simply because they were born black and Latino. And so I don't care about Kumbaya. I wanna know when are white Americans actually going to live up to the values of this country and the values that they state. Then we can talk after that. Sorry, y'all. That movie got me a little bit emotional, so I'm gonna calm down. I knew I wanted to get to her on that question. Yes, sir. Actually, I second the call, so thank you. Okay.
Mm-hmm. Well, then, since this president is not going to do that, right? I mean, no. Where do we start? <laughs> well, well, right. Well, in But but you make it an excellent point though. Right. Okay. I, I do I do want to leave time for everyone else to ask questions. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yes, sir. It also, it's not just about the fear, though. It's about, it's about the institutional advantages that come even if you don't fear those kids, even if they're your buddies. You know, I went to school with a whole bunch of white kids, and they didn't, I don't know if they feared me. I wasn't that much bigger than them. But the point is, they may not have feared me, but they still took advantage of the advantages that were afforded to them, even unconsciously. And that's where I think people, a lot of people need to be addressing this issue. It's not about how you feel about these kids. It's about, you know, what are you going to do after you get out of school? You know, what do you, what you understand that these kids in these schools don't have the same kind of, you know, books and supplies and resources. Nicole, can you speak a little bit more to that? What? Well, what he was, th- that specific example, number one, because I want to make sure that it was... Oh, no, there's a lot of liberal parents in Brooklyn Heights who don't want their, yeah. (laughs) 
Yes, everyone should read that. I hired him. Just <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Uh, well, it's more a book uh, about the film. It's really uh, a recreation of the film you saw in a book with some passages, also an intro. I, actually, I don't know if Gloria accepted to do an intro, but it's also about his experience making the book. So it's an accompanying book to the movie, which is different than... How can we increase the distribution of the film? Right. Um, well, um, let your friends know, first of all, that it's coming out uh, in the theaters. If you can show up, that would make a big difference. Also, um, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Um, uh, from our friends at Magnolia Pictures. Um, if you go to their website, you, you can uh, find out where exactly the film is playing uh, near you. But in addition to that, we really want Baldwin back in the curriculum. So we're going to work on that and also screen the film in places where traditionally people may not necessarily go to the theater to see movies and also where people who may not be interested in seeing this kind of film. And so it's important for us to do that work and we're, we, want to, we want to take it seriously. But uh, j just to um, address a little bit some of the, que the uh, questions that were asked, um, I mean, Baldwin does say it if you, when in, in the film, like there's these two parallel roads in America or lives in America that, or, that really rarely cross. And until that happens, it's just gonna, I, I, it's just gonna get worse. But so we hope that this film uh, creates discussions that are beginning like here today mm -hmm. that are really important to, to and start. I, and, and I think that there's room for both perspectives. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. I think that people, as long as people start doing the work, the point is, is that people are just not doing the work. People don't want to approach it. White folks don't want to start unpacking their whiteness and looking at the painful history that their whiteness created. So whether it's my perspective or someone else's perspective, the point is to begin. We haven't even begun. People are still in their respective corners hiding out, pretending that the issue is going to go away. The point is, is to at least begin the dialogue and to choose which way you want to approach how you begin to uh, look at the issues that we are grappling with as a nation because no one, there's no one size fits all and no one perspective is going to work for everyone. I'm gonna exercise a little bit of moderator's privilege and just ask the final question, if I may, to Aisha, who I just wanna bring this back to who your uncle was as a person. And in this film, as you watch it, are there any tiny details, any inflections of his voice, either 
spoken through footage or through Sam Jackson's narration that just bring back particular memories for you? Well, I mean, his voice, it's interesting. Uh, nine siblings, he was the oldest. Um, four boys, four uncles, five girls. All of them really, really incredible, powerful, really strong personalities. My grandfather, David Baldwin, was a really immense figure in the household and very uh, authoritarian and very strong. And so they came up through that kind of disciplinarian environment, all having very strong personalities. And just hearing his you know, his analysis, his ability to just very quickly, you know, dress someone down, you know, someone coming, you know, with one perspective and him just being able, I experienced that regularly. I mean, it was just like, you know, it, it's hard for me to dialogue with other people because you, your mind learns to process things very quickly and very uh, succinctly and, and, and to almost be razor sharp in your ability. And so, you know, just listening to him and, uh, you know, hearing him talk, you know, uh, and most of it was at functions and on stage, you know, it brought me back to, it brings me back to when my uncles and my aunts and the family gathered together and everybody was speaking at the same time, but at the same time understanding each other and um, able to, you know, uh, have a conversation all at once. You know, those are the things that I miss about him the most, and especially my uncles, the men in the family who have all passed, is that that fierce courage, you know, that, that um, in the midst of terrorism, to still stand up and say, I'm a man. When you have someone like that in your family who's willing to go to bat for you, who's willing to stand up in front of audiences and say, I will not risk my wife, my sister, my brothers, my nieces, my nephews. You know, that gives you strength, you know, and pride because this person risked their life. They put their life on the line for you. It's just, you know, it's just incredible. I'm just filled with so much pride that he was my uncle, but he was also a father figure and he was also a man of the family that made an incredible sacrifice um, and spoke truth to power, you know, and influenced a generation and continues to influence generations. It's just, you know, it's, it's totally humbling. I want to thank the panel. I, I want to thank the panel and all of you for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.